Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Andrew. If I don't know you, um, I would love to meet you. So uh, we're glad that you're here with us today to our friends and family and guests and uh, everyone maybe watching online. Uh, it's great to have you with us. Uh, we are excited to continue in our series through the book of Romans this morning. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to take out that Bible. Um, open it up to Romans chapter 4. That's where we're going to be today. Romans chapter 4. <clears throat> or if you have a phone, that's okay too. You can pop that app open and follow along with us as well. As our friend Katie read for us. Um, today, we, we're, kind of, we're kind of moving through this book. Um, and the first few chapters um, have been a bit of a gauntlet, right? They've been a bit of a... Uh, a, a little bit of a beat down at times, but, but thankfully last week, uh, Brother Hansel gave us the, the, the exhale, the breath of fresh air, right? Where, where Paul's like building up to this crescendo. He's, he's, he's sort of making this case, right? In the first few chapters of the book of Romans, he's writing this letter to this church in Rome and, he, and he's, he's making this case ultimately for the gospel, but he begins to lay out this case by pointing to the sinfulness of man and he's he's highlighting the sinfulness of man and he's he's laying out this case he's given this diagnosis of the problem right we talked a few weeks ago about the bad news right the 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 gospel the good news comes as a response to the bad news it's not good news if it's not in light of bad news and so as we've as we've been working our way through this letter so far we've we've learned a couple of important things so let's just do a little bit of review, just to kind of catch us up to where we are today. A little bit of review. So we've learned a couple things. One, we've learned that God is a judge. He's a just, He's righteous, He's fair. But He is a judge, and He is going to judge humanity. He's going to judge every person. Every person who's ever lived, every person who ever will live, aside from Jesus, will face the judgment of God. We've learned, he's, Paul's been very clear about this. Everyone's subject to this judgment. Second thing we've learned is that humanity, we, in and of ourselves, in our own strength, in our own flesh, we are unable to live up to the standard that God will use to judge us against. What is this standard? Well, the Bible uses the term righteousness. This is the Bible's term for God's standard that He will use to judge, to measure us against on the day of judgment, in the time of judgment. The standard is righteousness. Perfect, holy righteousness. This means perfection, right? Perfect in deed, perfect in thought, perfect in motive, perfect in action. All of it comes together to give us God's standard, which is Holy righteousness. And in, this, and in his sort of grand crescendo, as he's, he's kind of mowing us down with this, this truth of our sinfulness, the sinfulness of the Gentiles, the sinfulness of the Jews, the sinfulness of every human on the planet, in the beginning of chapter 3, he just says, look, it's everyone. There is no one who is righteous. Not one person is righteous. No, not one person lives up to the standard that God has set out for us to live up to. He's very clear about this. In our flesh, even when we do the right thing, we do it for the wrong reasons, right? He's saying there's, there's, 
There's layers to what is required for righteousness, and we don't hit those layers in and of ourselves. So that means that every person is deserving of God's righteous judgment. Every single person in this room is deserving of the righteous and just judgment of God. It's heavy. He, he doesn't hold back. He doesn't pull any punches. He's like, this, let me be clear about what the situation is. But Paul's point, the, the main point that he's trying to make is not just simply that all of humanity is doomed. All of humanity is doomed to face God's condemnation. That's not his point. That's not what he's trying to ultimately get to. His point is that there actually is good news. That's the point. It's really important for us to understand this. This point that there is actually a way for us to be saved from this righteous and just condemnation, from this wrath of God that we have earned, there is actually a way for us to be saved from it. That's where we get that term. We use it just sort of like colloquially now. Like, are you saved? (laughs) Like, are you a saved person? Well, what do you mean by that? I've had people say that to me like, I remember, I remember when I was a kid, I was, in, I was in my grandfather's church, and I was sitting with one of my friends, and he had brought one of his friends to church. And, we, you know, we're going through the service, and I don't remember what it was even about, but I remember my friend asked his friend, hey, are you saved? And the kid was like, saved from what? Like, what are you talking about? Like, he had no context for what that meant. We say that all the time, but what, what do we mean? Well, this is what we mean. Paul's telling us what we need to be saved from. The wrath of God, the condemnation of God, that's what we need to be saved from. So there's, there's substance to it. And it's really important for us to understand the way in which this salvation comes to us. How does this salvation actually happen? How does it come to humans? How does God make it available? If we... We don't understand the way in which God makes it available to us, how this salvation comes to us, then we have actually no way of receiving it. We have to understand all of these things in order for us to receive the salvation that God makes available. And this is when he when he gets he starts getting to what what Hansel talked about last week, the, the second half of, of chapter three. This idea that our righteousness is not achieved, it is received. Right? Our, our righteousness is not achieved, it is received. This is a crucial point. This is sort of the crux of what he's trying to communicate to us. See, before, before Christ, up until Jesus came and showed up on this earth, however many, 2,000 or so years ago, which he actually did, right? That's a historical fact. The Jewish people, God's people, they saw God's law as the way to righteousness. That was the way that God had communicated to them about what righteousness was and the standard He communicated it to them through the law. It was God's revelation of His righteousness to them. But in chapter 3, Paul says, hold on. He says, okay, stop. He says, now, that we, are, now we are able to see God's righteousness, he says, apart from the law. He says that the law and the prophets bear witness to it. They're pointing to it. They're pointing to what actually is righteousness now. But 
But it, it, we, he says it's manifest, it's made manifest. We're able to see it apart from the law. He says that righteousness now comes through Jesus. Comes through a person who came, who showed up on the earth, walked on the ground. He had skin, he had bones, he had a brain, he, had, he, had all, he, had, he was a human, he was fully God, fully man, he walked on this earth. And he says that is where we look to now, that is where righteousness has been made manifest. Where you can actually see it. It's in Jesus now. The perfect righteousness of God is there. He's trying, to, he's trying to avert our attention there now. He says, and not only is God's righteousness made manifest in Jesus, but he says, but God has actually, this is, what, this is, what, this is all review, right? We're just reviewing, catching up. God has actually sent Jesus to be what he calls our propitiation. And he uses that word, propitiation, that John taught us about last week. Jesus is our propitiation. So what does that mean? Well, we saw that picture for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, right? If you didn't see last week's sermon, you got to catch up, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It gives us this picture of what God means when he says Jesus is our propitiation. He says, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, he made him to be sin. Who knew no sin? Right? Jesus didn't know sin. He hadn't sinned, but God made him to be sin. Why? To be our propitiation, right? So that in him, when we are in him, we might become what? The standard. We might become the righteousness of God. We might be able to have the thing that God is going to use to judge us, a judge against us. That's where it's found. In him, he says. Why? Because God made him to be sin. We can now become, become, that's an identity change, right? Become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. He's building out this beautiful picture of the gospel for us. So, Jesus lived perfectly. He fulfilled the righteous standard is what he's saying. And he is, because of that, he's able now to be the perfect sacrifice for sin. The once and for all sacrifice, as Hebrews says. There's no more need. That's why we don't do sacrifices when we show up to church. We don't say, okay, who's bringing the goat? We don't say that anymore. Why? Because we already have the once and for all sacrifice in Jesus. That's where it's found. And now he says that through Jesus we can be, and he uses another well, he uses the Greek word, but we use the, the English word justified. Right? So we have these kind of big theological words, propitiation, justification, right? But we've got to understand what these words mean. He says now we can be justified before God. But what does justification mean? Well, if you've been around church for a while, you probably heard the little expression, right? Well, justification means to be justified means that it's just as if I'd never sinned. A little way to remember it, right? People say that. And that's true. Justified is a legal term. It's legal language. That means to be made right. Simply what it means, right? To be made right before God. To be put in a position to be made right. To be made right according to the standard that God is going to use to judge us. That's what it means. To be justified. So now... God sees us, if we are justified in Christ, through Christ, as if we had never sinned. 
But it's actually better than that. He doesn't just take our sins away, expunge them from our record, and bring us back to zero. Right? It's like if, you, if you've ever, I know nobody in here has ever done this, but if you've ever overdrawn your bank account. <laughs> right? And you've got to make that phone call to somebody, mom or whoever, like, look, I need $27.50 to get my account back to zero. Right? It's, it's, right? So that's, that's God forgiving, right? Removing our sin. He doesn't just take us back to zero and say, okay, now you get a fresh start. That's why I don't like when people use that language like, God gives me a second chance. It's not that God's like, okay, I'm taking you back to zero. Now it's on you to figure this out. I'm giving you a second try at righteousness. That's not, that's not what this is. That's not what the gospel says. God doesn't give us a second chance at earning our way to him. Right? He, he, he takes us past zero, way higher, right? He, he takes us to Bill Gates' level, the highest level of Elon Musk, whoever the richest guy is. Now, I don't know. changes like every day, however crypto is doing that day. <laughs> so, so Jesus dies for our sin. And it doesn't just bring us back to, to even. We receive this forgiveness through his sacrifice. He dies the death that we deserve, but, but as we see in 2 Corinthians 5, it says that we also become his righteousness. So it's, it's not just as if I'd never sinned, it's actually just as if I'd always obeyed. That, that's higher than zero, right? Because Jesus perfectly obeyed. He fulfilled all of the law perfectly. This is what we receive. So his, his propitiation <laughs> is, is deep. It's wide. It's all expenses paid trip to Sandals, Jamaica. Right? Better than that, actually. And so how do we, how do we receive this? Well, in chapter 3, 24 and 25, it tells us very clearly and, and all this is connected to our passage today. That's why we have to have all this context. It tells us in verse 24 and 25, we're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. And how is it received? To be received by faith. That's how it's received. That's how it comes to us. That's how it, that's how it hits us. We receive all of that by faith. This big, huge word. It's a small word, but it means a lot. There's a lot packed into this word of what faith is. Remember, Paul's point is that true righteousness before God, the righteousness that God accepts, it's not achieved, it's received. And the way that it is received is through faith. Through believing God and trusting that what He says is actually true. Trusting in the promises that He makes. And this has been Paul's great case, right? He's, he's building out this case, almost like he's a, a lawyer in a, in a courtroom as he's working his way through Romans. Using all this legal language, he's given all these pictures of legal uh, 
trial and, and judgment and justification and all these legal terms. It's all very legal language. Which brings us now to chapter 4. So here we are, chapter 4. All of this has happened. We've seen this great case that Paul is building. We've seen the great climax, conclusion at the end of chapter 3 that John taught us about last week, this propitiation that now all have sinned and fall short, but can be justified through faith in Jesus. It's it's crazy. It is. To the people who would be hearing it, it would be crazy. To us, it it should be crazy. It It should just make us go, wait, what? Hold on. That doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. And that's good if we think that. And so when we get to chapter 4, now Paul, as any good lawyer or any good preacher, he begins to illustrate his point. Right? This, is, this is how he's illustrating for us what he just said in chapter 3. That God's plan of redemption has never been about us achieving righteousness on our own. That's never been God's intention. Even in the Old Testament. God didn't change His plan when Jesus came. He wasn't like, okay, all you Old Testament folks, figure it out until Jesus gets here. And then the New Testament people, they got it made. No, he's, this has been God's way of doing things all along. Is what he's trying to say. His plan has always been that He would make a way for His people to receive righteousness through faith. And because of this, He would be the one to receive the glory. He alone is the one who can boast. This is why we asked this question this morning. Who does the boasting? It's an important question for us as we think about our salvation, as we think about how we received it, how we process it, how we communicate it. Ephesians 1 says it very clearly that God does this, all of that we've been talking about, He does this to the praise of His glorious grace. That gives us insight into His his motivation of why He's doing what He's doing so that His glorious grace will be praised. So if this is true, then God gets the credit for all of salvation. That's what this means, that God takes credit. God, He gets all the credit for our salvation. This is why... If you go back to chapter 3 again, this is why Paul asked this question, right? He says, then what becomes of our boasting? If this is true, then what becomes of our boasting? And he says, well, it's, it's, it's excluded. It's not a part of it anymore. Your boasting and my boasting about our salvation, about what we've accomplished to earn our salvation or merit our salvation, it, it's totally taken out of the equation, he says. It's excluded. It's not a part of this. Your boasting has no place. God gets all the credit. If this is true, then we have no room to boast at all. And in chapter 4, he, he, he shows us this. He illustrates it for us. The beginning here. And he, and he does this by sort of calling two, two witnesses to the stand, so to speak. Right? He calls two witnesses, Abraham and David. Two witnesses that anyone familiar with the Jewish religion would have been very familiar with. And if you know anything about Jewish people, especially Jewish people in the first century, 
to say the word, to, to, to say the names Abraham and David, that you're getting people's attention. They're like, okay, he's talking about Abraham and David. He's talking about, you know, Kardashian or whoever. Like, like you're going to get people's attention when you say these names. I don't know who's famous anymore. I'm so, I'm so out of it. I don't get it. Like, who? So he's like, okay. He, he, he brings in these heavy hitters, right? These people that people are going to know, people that are very important in the lineage of the Jewish people. The, the, the main figures, a couple of the main figures. He's saying, look, I'm not just making this up. He's like, I'm not just pulling this out of nowhere. This is the way that it's always been. Look at verse 1 in chapter 4. It says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? And that word gained also can be translated as like found. That's, that's, that's more sort of like courtroom language, like the, the jury finds you guilty, right? Paul is asking, he's asking this rhetorical question here. He's saying, Abraham, Father Abraham, who had many sons, many sons, had Father Abraham. No, he didn't say all that. All the Christian school and church Sunday school people just outed themselves right now. He said, our forefather Abraham, he says, how was he found before God at judgment is the question that he's asking. How was he found before God? How did he find himself? It's like that old evangelism explosion question, right? If you were to die today and you were to stand before God at the pearly gates, if there are such a thing, and, oh, you know, it's sort of a, a, a thought exercise, really. And, and God were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What's your answer, right? Well, this is what he's saying. Well, what would Abraham's answer be? And then in verse 2, he goes on to sort of explain further. He says, for if Abraham was justified by works then he has something to boast about, but not before God. He says, Don't get it twisted here. Standing before God in judgment, even Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, has no case to make that his works were enough to merit salvation. Not even Abraham is what he's trying to say. He has no case. He has no, no, no case for him to make to say, look, here's been my obedience to you here have been my works to you god so so and he's like no that if if that were the case then abraham would be able to boast before god right is what he's saying and actually at the time paul's responding he's, he's talking to people who there, there actually were was literature written around that time that was that was teaching that abraham actually was justified by works teachings were circulating in the Jewish religion at the time, the Jewish culture, that were, that were actually teaching. We have the records of some of them here. There's a, there's a book, a writing called Jubilee. In Jubilee chapter 23, verse 10, it says, Abraham was perfect in all his dealings with the Lord and gained favor by his righteousness through his life. Another one. There's a lot more, but I'll just give you two. Another one, a, book, a writing called 1 Maccabees, chapter 2, verses 52. says, Was not Abraham found faithful when tested, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness? So he's not just speaking to a straw man here. He's not just inventing something to, to, to counter. He's actually speaking against teachings that were popularized in the Jewish culture. And you can see why these books were left out of the Bible. That's why we don't have those in our Bible right now, because they don't line up with the teachings of Scripture. They don't line up with the Gospel. 
Because that's not true. So Paul says that this can't be the case. This can't be the case that Abraham had had merited his salvation, that he he had earned it, that he had done what was right enough, that God granted him righteousness because of his works. He says it can't be the case. One, because if that were true, Abraham would have had a reason to boast before God. And two, he says, well, because the actual scriptures don't say that, is what Paul says. It's like the actual Bible doesn't say that. And then in verse 3, he quotes the actual Bible that tells us that that's not true, right? In verse 3, he actually quotes back from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which says, Abraham believed God, and that was counted to him as righteousness. His belief, his faith, was counted to him as righteousness. Not his work, not his behavior. His belief, his faith. And that word counted is an important word. It's an accounting term. And if there's anyone here that is qualified to speak to you about accounting terms, it's clearly me. Because <laughs> I, I took counting twice. So I think I have a pretty good handle on it. It's the only class I had to take twice. But, but it's an accounting term, and the Greek word is like, Logizdomai, right? I don't know how to speak Greek. And it means to count as. To count as something. And this word shows up several times in this passage. It's a very important word in this text. This word is saying that God counted His faith as righteousness. God counted His faith as righteousness. Abraham was not righteous in and of himself, But God was able to count his faith as righteousness. God treated Abraham as though he had lived a righteous life even though he didn't. You should be kind of like, that should, should be hard for us to wrap our minds around a little bit. God, God is giving him credit for something that he didn't do. He's he's counting his faith as righteousness, even though he was not righteous in and of himself. He's he's counting it as, right? It's sort of like if you you have like a a house that is leased to own, and you make all these payments for a year, and then at the end of the year, they say, okay, uh, now we're going to take all those rent payments that you made, and we're going to count them as mortgage payments towards your house, even though they weren't mortgage payments when you made them. We're going re- retroactively and we're counting that as, right, it's, it's, it's a backwards way to account for something and to change its status. It's tricky for our minds to process. It's counting his faith as righteousness, even though he had no righteousness in and of himself. One commenter says that it is as God accounting to Abraham a righteousness that does not inherently belong to him. Paul further drives this point home if you look down to verse 5. Where he says that God justifies the ungodly. God justifies, we talked about justification earlier, right? God makes right the ungodly. And it's interesting that he's using that word and he's sort of lumping Abraham right into that pile. 
He's calling Abraham ungodly. <laughs> to the Jewish person, they've been like, what? You're calling Abraham ungodly? Like, Come on, man. It would have been scandalous that Abraham was ungodly, but it's true, right? Abraham was a pagan. He was a pagan man wandering around Ur. Where, that's like in Iraq. He's wandering around in Ur, and God just shows up to him and says, okay, plucks them out. There was nothing about Abraham in and of himself that merited that God would do that. That was God's free choice to choose Abraham. And, and God, what God did to Abraham and through Abraham was all a gift. That's the word that the, the Bible uses. It was a gift. It's a gift from God to Abraham. And in verse 4 and 5, Paul, he, he makes the distinction here, right, between something that's earned and something that is a gift. He says this is really important for us to understand. Something that is a gift is different than something that you earn. You have to understand this. He says it in verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And that's, a, that's, a, that's easy for us to understand, right? Oh, okay, well that makes sense, right? If you have a job and you get your paycheck, I would guess that whenever that hits your bank account, you don't just overflow with gratitude for your boss's generosity towards you. Probably not. Maybe some of you are more sanctified than others. Why? Because you've earned that money. You've earned it. You have it coming toward you. That is the wages of your work. You've earned that money. You've given them work, and they're responsible now to give you the money that you have agreed upon. It's a deal. It's a contract that you've made. Your boss isn't just giving you the money out of the kindness of his own heart. He's giving you the money that is required to pay you based on what you've earned. Paul's making this very clear, this distinction. In fact, it's unjust if they don't give you the money. You can sue them and say, okay, I did these work, this work for you and you haven't paid me, so now you're actually unjust for not paying me. So you actually are in debt to me. You see where he's, he's pulling this apart, right? He's helping us to see that we don't get to do that before God. We don't get to go to God and take him our good works and say, okay, actually, God, you are unjust because you're not giving me what I deserve for these good works that I'm giving you. He's, he's tearing down these arguments. It's not how it works. He's saying that our righteousness is either or. Right? It's either or. Either it is merited by our works or it is credited to us without regard to our works. It, it's, either all, it's either our works or it's not. And there's no blending of the two. It's either or. So you can choose. You can choose what you bring before God. And the judgment. You can, you can choose. You can bring your works or you can bring the righteousness that He gives freely through Jesus as a gift. It's your choice. Those are the two options. Either we have earned our salvation through our works or we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So it's your choice today which one of those to cling to. Which one of those to put your trust in. Which one of those to put your faith in. 
Where are you placing your trust, your faith? Remember when John precariously stood up on that chair last week? And everyone was panicking, especially his wife? Where are you placing your faith? On your works? Are you trying to put God into your debt? Okay, God, you owe me heaven now. You owe me salvation. You owe me X, Y, Z, whatever else we put in it. Because that's what I've earned by my good works. Or do you believe what the Bible says and you receive the righteousness separate from your works that are a gift to you from God, received through faith? That's it. Those are the two options. This is why we, this is why we ask that question, right? There's no middle ground. There's no half and half. It's either all us. It's either on us or it's on him. Who does the boasting? Who? Which one? Do you get to do the boasting for your salvation? You don't. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Are you relying on your own works? Is God obligated to you in your mind? This is, I'm speaking just hypothetically in our own minds, right? Is, do you believe that God is obligated, indebted to you for what, you, what good you have done for Him? Do we, do we try to live in such a way that we try to put God into our debt, even unintentionally? It's not how any of this works, is what Paul's saying. This is you got, it's not how any of this works. And side note, in chapter 3, Paul talks about the works of the law. He uses this phrase, works of the law. He's referring to the Mosaic law, the code, right? That you, that you skip over when you read through your Bible, Leviticus, right? But in chapter 4, he changes his language from works of the law to just works. Why? Because he's lumping everybody in. Right? He's not just saying this is not just a Jewish thing. A- Abraham was not under the Mosaic Law. He was alive 400 years before the Mosaic Law even came. So Abraham wasn't judged against the Mosaic Law as it was given to Moses and God's people. So he couldn't have said, well, I've done the works of the law because they, they hadn't been given yet. That lumps us all in, right? It's None of our works, even our good, new covenant, churchy, Christian works, not even those will earn our righteousness. It's not how we earn righteousness. It's not earnable. Where does our righteousness come from? In verse 5, he tells us, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. He's lumping us in with Abraham, right? Abraham's faith was counted for him as righteousness. So now, anyone, he says, anyone, the one who does not work but believes, the one who does not work, now, that lands on our American Western sensibilities weird, doesn't it? Like, wait, we don't have to work? Everyone has to work. I'm just reading the Bible to you, right? And the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness over the one who does work. 
what it's saying. It's, it comes from believing God. Trusting Him. Putting our faith in Him. Believing Him. Not just believing in God. There's a difference. He's not saying it comes from believing that there is a God. That's different than believing God. I can believe that John exists, but I don't have to believe everything that he says. I believe most of what he says. You see the difference? Believing God. Not enough to just acknowledge its existence. We must believe and trust what he says to receive the righteousness that he requires. This is incredible. God sees you. God sees you. He sees me. He sees our hearts. He sees your motivations. He sees your thoughts, your intentions. He knows why you do what you do. He sees you. There's nothing we can hide from him. There's nowhere that we can run. Right? Psalm 139. You can't run to the bottom of the ocean. You can't go to outer space. You can't go to Mars to get away from it. He sees you. He knows. There's nothing we're hiding from him. He sees our darkened hearts. He knows our sinful motivations. Yet in his mercy and his grace, he justifies the ungodly. He justifies the ungodly. He doesn't justify the sort of godly. People who think that they're sort of godly. In fact, if you think that you're sort of godly on your own, then you're disqualified. That's what he's saying. You've actually taken yourself out because you're, you're putting your faith not on Christ and His righteousness. You're putting your faith on, well, I'm sort of godly, so that should be... I mean, you could sort of make up the rest, right? No, no, no. It's either or. That's, that's us trying to boast just a little bit. Just a little bit of boast in there. Toss me a little bone here, God. Just give me a little pat on the back. Give me something. It's like, no, that's not how it works. We do not have the right to go before God and boast before Him about our righteousness, before Him. Because it's, as we saw last, last couple of weeks in chapter 3, right, it's, it's, there's no one righteous. There's not one who's righteous in thought or deed or intention. It's all stained. It's all tainted. It all falls short of the glory of God. No. We don't get to boast. God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the wicked. God justifies the murderer, the adulterer, the liar. That's why Paul, in the next verse, goes on to quote a famous lying, murderous adulterer. King David, he was a liar. He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. But David, it says, knew full well how much of a blessing it was to not have those things counted against him, it says. He knew that his works were not enough, but he believed God. He knew. David believed God. He didn't look to his righteousness. He didn't say, God, I've, I've conquered armies for you. I've built 
a temple. I've built, I've built all these things for you. I, I, I want to build you this thing. I want to do all this work for you, God. I want to I build this nation up. I want to conquer for you, God. He, he knew that that wasn't enough. But he believed God. And look what it says in, in verse 7. He's quoting Psalm 32. Blessed are those. This is David just acknowledging. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. And whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That we're count again. Blessed is, that's the guy who's blessed. That's the man who's blessed. Not the guy who conquers armies, who kills Goliath, who, right? It's not that guy. It's the guy whose sins are forgiven. Whose deeds, whose, whose deeds, his lawless deeds are forgiven and, and, and covered by what? By the blood of Jesus. By the sacrifice of Jesus. We are saved by grace through faith. And before you start to think, if you're, if you're, think, if you're a thinker, right, you say, well, wait a second, wouldn't that just make our faith just one more final work that we would do to earn our salvation? We keep reading Ephesians 2. It says, actually, you're saved by grace through faith, and even that faith is given to you. It's a gift. The faith that we have to believe is a gift. If you don't take my word for it. Read Ephesians 2. God knows full well the extent of our unrighteousness. He knows it better than we do. He knows our unrighteousness way better than we do. He sees all the things that we're blind to. But in His kindness, in His mercy, in His grace, He sends Jesus to be our propitiation. He made the one who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The very thing that he requires. The only thing that he requires. The full, unadulterated, fully leaded, high test, full fat, no saccharin, no stevia, the full thing. The righteousness of God. It's what he requires. And that is what He gives us. That's what He makes us into. We become the righteousness of God in Christ. And if God is the one that makes us righteous, then we are truly counted as righteous. There's nothing that you can do to change that. And God is not going to renegotiate the terms of His deal. I love what J.I. Packer says about this. He says, Nobody... Nobody can produce new evidence of your depravity that will make God change his mind. God justified you, so to speak, with his eyes open. He knew the worst about you at the time when he accepted you for Jesus' sake. And the verdict that he passed then was and is final. You catch that? We've said it before. I forget who said it. All of your sins and my sins were future sins when Jesus died on the cross. I'm not surprised by any of it. He's not like, wait, what? 
You did what? Oh, well, that, that throws a wrench in the whole thing. No. His sacrifice is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. His propitiation, his justification, his adoption is sufficient for you. For whatever you've done. Nothing surprises God. There's nothing that you can do or will do or have done that God is shaking his head, wringing his hands, trying to figure out what... He's not driving an ambulance like, okay, what happened here? No, he, he knows. He's seen it all. He was there when it all happened. He knows your heart. He knows your mind. He knows your thoughts. He knows what you watch, what you say, what you listen to. What you, uh, he knows all of it. And yet he still has committed as a gift to justify his people. It's people who place their faith in Him and not in their own works. It's people who don't look to themselves to say, okay, God, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get, I'm, I'm, just give me a minute. Let me get some stuff together. Let me move some money around. Let me get in the gym a little bit. Let me start eating better. Let me, I, I feel like I can really turn this around. He's not waiting for that. God doesn't love some future cleaned up version of you. He knows you right now. He knows the you of the past. He knows the you of the future. And he's, he's paid for all of it. His sacrifice is sufficient for all of that. For the sins of the world. There's nothing outside of that. So don't believe that lie, right? This is the lie that we believe. That, ah, that we have to, we go back, you know, we mess up, we go back to ground, yeah, back to square one. Yeah, just... God's got to be sick of me by now. Surely he wouldn't put up with this. Surely this is beyond what he's, you know. I mean, he's a sensible person. He's not going to. No, he, his, his grace is the depth and the width and the breadth of his grace far exceeds our, our, far, our, our farthest imaginations, exceedingly abundantly above what we can even think or imagine. You can't outsin his grace. Paul gets to this later. He's like, we don't try to do that, certainly. That's not the point. If you, if you miss that, if that's what you think, then you don't understand. We're not saying just, okay, then that means we get to do whatever we want. No. Right? It's like the paycheck thing. When, when the, if you believe that the righteousness that you have was earned by you as a paycheck, then of course you're going to squander it. It's yours to do what you want with. But if your righteousness is a free gift of grace to you from God to be used, as he says, then that changes how we view it. It changes how he, what we do with our life. We now live our life for him and not for ourselves anymore. This is, this is where we, we, the sanctification comes in, right? He gives us his spirit now. And he says, okay, now I have good works for you to do. You give your life back as a living sacrifice to me. This is your reasonable act of worship to me. This is, what it, this is how it works from here on out, right? It's not just, okay, God, well, thanks, that, that deal's done. We sign on the dotted line. We'll, I'll see you in heaven. It's not what this is. We get adopted in, right? We get, we get brought in. We get justified and brought in, adopted into his family and seated at his table and now sent out as his ambassadors, it says in 2 Corinthians 5. There's ambassadors of reconciliation to tell others about this reconciliation that we have received as a free gift that is available now to them. To the people that we talk to, hey, it's available. <laughs> you can be saved. 
And when they go, what's that mean? We go, okay, now I know what that means. Saved from what? Well, I'd love to tell you about that. Because I've received it as a free gift, right? It, it, it puts us all equally at the foot of Jesus. In equal need. The same amount of grace is needed for all of us. No one has a head start. No one's born on third base. So, where today are you placing that trust? Where, where is your trust? Functionally. Not just what you think, but where is it actually? Are you, are you trying to rest on the strength of your own power? Maybe it's to do good things. Maybe it's to serve the church or to be a pastor or to be in ministry or to be a, an elder or a parent or a wife or a husband or a, a whatever. I don't know what, whatever you are. Maybe it's some really good things that you're doing. But you're doing them from a posture of trust in yourself, in your own ability to accomplish what God has given you to do. Instead of resting. This is what Jesus says, come to me. You're laboring. <laughs> You're heavy laden. Why? Because you're trying to do what you can't do. And I will give you what? Rest. Give you rest. Give you rest from, from, the, from putting the faith in yourself to save yourself. Put your faith in me. Trust me as your source of righteousness, as your source of strength. Ephesians 6 says, be strong in the strength of the Lord. <laughs> Not in the strength that you must stir up. Be strong. But in the strength of the Lord, God will give you what you need. And it's, it's so crucial for us. It's so, it's so crucial for us in our day-to-day, in our moment-by-moment, in our hour-by-hour, to ask the Lord to show us, where am, I, where am I resting my faith? Where am I placing my trust? In you or in me? Or in someone else? Or something else? And He will show you. And he will give you grace in your weakness, right? His power is made perfect when we are weak, not when we are pseudo strong or trying to fake like we're strong. That's not when his power is made perfect in us, when we're weak before him, needy, and receiving his gift. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your gift of grace to us. We are not deserving. We are not worthy. We haven't earned it. We haven't merited it. But you, in your goodness, in your holiness, in your kindness, in your patience, in your love, in your mercy, you have given it to your people. And you've made it available. You've made yourself knowable. You've made yourself graspable. And so, God, we pray today that you would help us to grasp to you as you grasp on to your people even tighter. And so we praise you this morning. We thank you for your free gift of grace. We thank you for life that you give your people. We thank you for your propitiation of Jesus, his sacrifice to cover our sin, the forgiveness that you offer, the healing that you offer. You don't just leave us alone, that you move in and you set up shop in our hearts and you renovate the whole thing. And we praise you for it. And we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.